0: This spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by CyberGRX. CyberGRX provides enterprises and their third parties with the most cost-effective and scalable approach to third-party cyber risk management today. Built on the market's first third party cyber risk exchange, CyberGRX arms organizations with a dynamic stream of third party data and advanced analytics, helping organizations efficiently manage cyber risk in their partner ecosystems. Check them out at cybergrx.com. This is a Spotlight Edition of the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. You don't have to dig deep into trade publications, social media sites, or message boards to grasp that your business partners, suppliers, and other third parties pose a significant risk to your business. Just scanning the headlines is enough. Consider, for example, the fate of the firm LabCorp and Quest Diagnostics, which in 2019 disclosed massive data breaches affecting more than 24 million patients. The source of those breaches? The American Medical Collection Agency, or AMCA. And that's not the only example. Around 15 million health records were exposed in 2018 as a result of attacks on electronic health record systems. Outside of healthcare, e-commerce sites have been the victim of so-called mage cart skimming attacks. And, of course, there's NotPetya, the most devastating and costly malware attack ever. Despite the increase in exposure, however, third-party cyber risk management practices vary greatly across companies and industries. Even in the financial services and insurance industries, one survey found that two-thirds of third-party cyber risk management programs are immature, lacking a solid grasp of inherent risk and well-defined risk appetites, according to a study by the Center for Financial Professionals. Why do so many companies struggle to manage third-party cyber risk and what distinguishes a mature from an immature cyber risk program? Those are questions that we set out to answer when we sat down with two experts on the topic. Dave Stapleton is the Director of Assessment Operations at the firm CyberGRX, while John Errett is the President and Co-Founder of the Third-Party Risk Association. In this Spotlight podcast, Dave, John, and I talk about the many technology, cultural, and logistic obstacles facing companies that want to establish a third-party cyber risk management program. We also review best practices for building a mature cyber risk management program. To start off, I asked Dave to talk a little bit about the differences between risk management and cyber risk management.
1: David Stapleton, Director of Assessment Operations.
2: And uh, John Arrett, President and Co-Founder of the Third-Party Risk Association.
0: Well, John and Dave, uh, welcome both of you to Security Ledger Podcast. It's great to have you both on.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So we're here today to talk about the very kind of current and timely topic of third-party cyber risk. I guess to start off, maybe a good thing to start off is talking about both third-party risk management and then third-party cyber risk management. My sense is that most companies are doing third-party risk management in some way, certainly companies of any size, but third-party cyber risk is is newer. Uh, Dave, talk about what it entails and how it might be different from the types of risk management that companies and boards of director are used to talking about.
1: So obviously the first characteristic here is we're talking about third-party risk management or cyber risk management. So it's the vendors that organizations are using. Um, We're seeing those numbers increase um, exponentially. So let's say you're using some global vendor for payroll administration, and just by virtue of the work that they perform on your behalf, they are processing, transmitting, and storing highly sensitive data about your employees. So if they suffer a data breach, um, you're going to have a real mess on your hands. And so um, there's a difference between, I guess, risk management and cyber risk in that um, what we're focusing on with cyber risk management are the more technical aspects of security controls that have been put in place, you know, safeguards that are meant to protect uh, an organization's data, or in the case of third parties, their customers' data, which they're responsible for at any particular time. So um, in a large way, I think that the difference is going to be based on the sort of technical nature of the work that's being performed to assess that risk and then to you know, mitigate or address that risk in some way um, after it's been identified.
0: Um, John, uh, any anything to add to that?
2: I think one of, one of the things, too, is a lot of times in, in traditional risk management, you can you know, you can explain away a risk through um, through a contract or insurance or things like that. And I, I think where we see the differences in cyber risk is you start to get a little, little more into the um, potential for reputational risk and those sorts of things. And even with those other controls in place, it's still an issue for companies, though.
0: I mean, you guys have both been in this industry and doing this for a long time. My sense, just being you know, the journalist who's been covering cybersecurity, information security for a number of years, is that this issue has really come to the fore in the last maybe th- uh, three or more years as we've just seen incident after incident, whether it's a data breach or a network compromise or some combination of those things, where when you kind of follow the breadcrumbs, what ends where you end up is with a contractor, or service provider who was compromised as a way to getting at their customer, basically, the the first party. Are we just becoming more aware of it or asking harder questions about cyber incidents and ending up with with this information? Or is it in fact there are just more of these that somehow the the bad guys have gotten hip to the notion that going in through a a third party contractor or a small services firm is is much easier than trying to hack the, the company directly?
1: So I think there's probably a combination of things. Um, One, certainly uh, threat actors are understanding that third parties are great entryways, and what they're really after is the data. It's not so much that they care to compromise the individual information systems of, you know, pick a company, Microsoft, or something like that. What they want is Microsoft's data, and so if they know that Microsoft is using a third party, and that third party has access to that sensitive data, and it's easier to get through that third party, and of course, that's a you know the path of least resistance is going to be used. I think the other big factor is the preponderance of third parties in our environments nowadays. Um, you mentioned you know an increase over the last three or four years. Um, you can certainly see that more and more third parties are just being used by companies. It's, it's kind of amazing. Um, CyberGyrex partnered with the Panamon Institute um, on a recent study, and you know we found that. On average, companies have 181 third parties who have access to their network. Uh, so it's kind of like a staggering wow. statistic. There's <laughs> that many that is, groups yeah. that are in there. So I, I would say it's a combination of the, the threat actors being hip to this uh, option of getting to this data in maybe an easier way. And also just that we're using so many vendors and third parties who have access to that data in the first place.
0: What are some of the other kind of lower volume third parties that uh, companies maybe are overlooking?
2: There's, there's a lot of different areas that, People traditionally kind of forget about, you know, printing companies, um, things like that, especially if you're in the financial world or the healthcare world. A lot of times uh, companies outsource to you know, a local printing company to get to print out statements or that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of sense of information that goes into that uh, shredding companies, you name it. There's anything that potentially has access to information or access to your network is stuff that um, really should be looked at. And, and a lot of times people don't really think about those things.
0: Dave, any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great example. I mean, it's, it's maybe not implicated as often in data breaches that we hear about, but one other area that certainly, uh, at the very least for a due diligence aspect, um, needs to be considered is people that just have access to facilities. Um, in some cases, they're not always system administrators or folks who are going to be going in and installing patches on you know, sensitive servers or something like that in your environment. It could just be someone who has access to that sensitive environment um, who's doing any type of uh, work. It could be you know, physical maintenance on the building itself. It could be janitorial services, things like that. Um, i not saying that they yeah. require the same level of scrutiny or rigor in a third-party risk assessment, um, but certainly those people are in a place to pot- potentially introduce risk.
0: You're listening to a spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast sponsored by CyberGRX. CyberGRX provides enterprises and their third parties with the most cost-effective and scalable approach to third-party cyber risk management today. Built on the market's first third-party cyber risk exchange, CyberGRX arms organizations with a dynamic stream of third-party data and advanced analytics, helping organizations efficiently manage cyber risk in their partner ecosystems. Check them out at CyberGRX.com. Uh, I think back to obviously the, the Target breach was one. I know that that struck a lot of people as kind of a new a new front where. You, know, you had a compromise by way of a, an HVAC vendor's system. I note uh, a recent one, Biostar 2, which is a third-party platform of biometric databases that has about you know, more than 5,000 companies and government agencies that, that contribute to it. That was the subject of a, of a data breach, a leak of data um, that exposed biometric data on thousands of, of people. It seems like every every week or so you, you get a new one of some sort. I, I wonder if any of them recently have, have caught your attention or, or um, th- you know had you sort of scratching your head and saying, man, <laughs> this is getting early.
1: <laughs> I um, was thinking about the, the Marriott um, breach that we learned about not oh, very yeah. long ago. That one to me was notable just because of the, the numbers. I mean, we're talking after it all came out, I think 383 million customers yeah. had data that was exposed yeah. I mean, that's that's just absolutely incredible numbers um and it was also interesting because the, the breach itself actually began in 2014 and you know they weren't aware of it um and for quite a while and then after they became aware of it, it took a little bit of more time before they actually started to notify their customers and it's you know there's been real consequences i think it's a good example of the con- the real life tangible consequences of um, not addressing third-party risk I think Marriott is facing uh, fines of over $120 million now. Um, yeah. they've, they just completely um, uh, canceled the, the Marriott Starwood uh, Guest um, Reservation Program. Um, and going back to what John was saying earlier about reputational risk, they, they can't even advertise that program anymore because it's just associated with hundreds of millions of customers' data being breached.
0: It's funny, I just stayed at a Marriott Starwood Hotel a couple weeks ago, and it had been a while, I think, you know, since that breach had come out. And they were like, well, do you have a Bonvoy, uh, you know, account number? I was like, well, I, I got a Starwood, you know, and they were like, yeah, um, we're going to have to create a new account for <laughs> you. just
1: like, oh, yeah. You would appreciate it if you didn't say that when you were here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Starwood's like a four-letter four, four letter word. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Talk about breaches that, that kind of stand out to me, um, the level one robotics breach, I think it was last year. For me, that one stands out simply for the fact that it was kind of one of the bigger ones that didn't result from, you know. Financial services, or credit card processing, or a healthcare company—you uh, know—you take major auto auto manufacturers, and it brings to light that the idea that third-party risk isn't limited to credit card information, or health information, or customer information, intellectual property to many of these organizations is as important or more important than that information. This kind of brought that to the forefront and hopefully opened up the eyes to a lot of industries that you know third-party risk isn't just something that the healthcare and finance people are worried about, that they should be doing the same thing.
0: I mean, obviously, in its origins, third-party risk monitoring and tracking really came about in connection with, with uh, regulations, whether it's Sarbanes-Oxley or, or FINRA or whatever. But um, or or HIPAA. Um, what um, what is the what is the connection really between compliance now and, and third-party cyber risk management? I mean, are organizations doing this pursuant to some regulatory requirement, um, or is this really truly just about managing cyber risk? And and if so, um, what what are the regulations that are calling out companies on this issue?
2: yeah i think it's a combination of both right i mean having something you have to comply with you know it makes it easier to get the budgetary resources to to do this sort of stuff or to build out a team um but it's also you know being done just to protect you know if companies are starting to see the light that there's a you know there's a, we go back to the reputation there's a lot of reputation issues that that can come about from a breach of this and um you know kind of having to, to not only comply with things and, and compliance isn't always enough right um you know if, if you're I think about PCI. If I'm going to be compliant with PCI, I'm going to protect protect cardholder data. They don't really care how you protect anything that's not associated with that cardholder data, and you might have information that's you know well beyond that. Um, and, and the same with regards to healthcare, a lot a lot of companies. In the healthcare space, are only concerned with PHI. Well, there's a lot of other information that they're sharing with vendors. Uh, it might be PII. It might be business confidential information to their hospital or their insurance company. You know, board meeting minutes, all that sort of stuff. It all needs to be protected. So you know, compliance is great um, as a starting point, but it doesn't yeah. necessarily take you to you know the the full uh, hundred yards. Dave, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I really like
1: the way that John put it, you know, compliance sometimes can have a fairly myopic focus. We're just, we're just thinking yeah. about this one thing, uh, cardholder data or uh, health data and where it exists, what systems it resides on. I mean, that's about it. And I think what we lose and um, when we talk, talk about that is um, the other risk factors that may exist within that same environment, that same organization that could end up having an impact on the data that we're more um, directly focused on. Even things like, you know, are you um, adequately conducting background checks of your employees? Things like that, you know, insider threat type of information that's not necessarily about the encryption algorithm that you're using to store um, card data. Um, So I think there's a concern, at least uh, in the folks that I work with um, quite often, that compliance is a a bit too narrowly focused. Um, Certainly it needs to be um, taken into consideration. You want to avoid fines and penalties and other things like that. Um, But it's so 1990s. Um, you know, <laughs> Absolutely, threats are changing, you know, minute by yeah. minute and, um, and compliance tends to be a little more static. So uh, I think yeah. a more you know, modern 21st century approach is to address risk where it exists um, and, and hopefully in doing so, you'll find that you are you know, meeting your compliance re- um, requirements at the same time.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're spot on, David. I think if you're addressing that risk, like the, the compliance stuff, just flows along. It, you know, it's generally it, you fall in line just by doing all the other stuff that, that you should be doing from a, um, a third-party risk standpoint.
0: So, I mean, speaking of 1990s, I mean, a lot of the technology that's used in in, in conjunction with third-party risk management and cyber risk management is kind of 1990s era technology, namely, <laughs> you know, spreadsheets to uh, and and. Questionnaires, whether those are online questionnaires or, God forbid, paper, um, to um, to assess, you know, uh, the existence of security controls and and so on and so forth, um, are. you know, and, and John and Dave, you, you both can probably speak to this. Is that still pretty much what most where most companies are with this with third party cyber risk management, uh, the Excel spreadsheets and the and the um, you know self administered um, assessments uh, by the third party vendor? Um, you know, where where is the state of the art right now in terms of uh, collecting that data and making it um, you know actionable?
1: Well, certainly at CyberGRX, we are still seeing uh, preponderance of spreadsheets, which makes (laughs) us very sad. Um, We're we're dealing with companies that are Fortune 100. We're also dealing with small, medium-sized businesses. And uh, across the board, we're still seeing that kind of um, static, uh, very manual, very flat file type um, organization of their third-party risk assessment, um, and then ultimately management program. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate because those types of things are, you know, one, not going to provide incredible insight. Imagine you have a thousand vendors and you send out a thousand spreadsheets. First off, um, anyone who's tried that before knows that you're going to need at least one full-time person to just harass the third parties to get you the spreadsheet back with some, you know, some letters written down in it. And then you have to actually do something with that spreadsheet. You've got, you know, let's say you get 500 of them back in a year. What are you going to do with 500 spreadsheets with a bunch of narrative, unstructured, unstandardized data in it? You can't compare them side by side. You have to really read through each and every one of them. So now you have to have a small army of, you know, third-party risk analysts to read through this stuff, um, decipher actual um, real um, insights that you can make risk-based decisions upon. Um, And it's a, it's an old model that I think maybe worked, perhaps when vendor uh, usage wasn't nearly as high as it is right now. Um, but certainly at CyberGRX, we think that's that's quite outdated.
2: Yeah, I, um, to chime in on the the Excel spreadsheets and the questionnaires, you know, that, that's a question I get, um, especially talking to CSOs. There, you know, they want to know, you know, when is the questionnaire going to go away? Uh, it's one of those things. I don't, I, and maybe Dave, you disagree, but I don't know if the questionnaire 100% is ever going to go away because there's really not a better alternative. I think. Um, it's working smarter or, or and not harder with those questionnaires and, and, you know, being able to triage vendors. And, um, you know, I see a lot of different organizations that, that probably aren't even at the questionnaire point, you know, they're, they're still protecting themselves solely with a contract, uh, or they're, they're sending out that Excel spreadsheet and not doing anything with it because they're just trying to meet a compliance requirement that they have a program that does something. Um, we see that an awful lot. Actually, I have a very good, uh, Presentation coming up in a few weeks that related to the evolution of man with different stages of all these different things it should be uh, pretty comical. But um, yeah, we, we see an awful lot of that stuff, um, and you know, we, it is the world is changing. We need to figure out how to make uh, make better use of the questionnaires, either through stuff like uh, what CyberGRX is doing with the, with an exchange, or you know, if you want to keep it in house, um, figure out better ways to work with your vendors where you're not just sending a questionnaire every year, uh, every two years or every three years and, and just getting the same information. Um, you know, I think it's third party or the more mature third party risk programs are starting to to pivot on that and say, OK, well, we, we kind of have a baseline from what we may have been doing in the past with either through Excel spreadsheets or through a GRC. Um, so let's start really focusing on risk and where risk lies and not just you know hitting the same vendor year over year because that's what your program says it's supposed to do by its methodology. Completely agree. I think that the you know, questionnaire is here to stay, at
1: least until the point that we can convince our third parties to allow us to put sensors in their networks and monitor traffic. Um, I would not hold my breath <laughs> on that ever happening. So until then, you've got you've got your uh, you've got your questionnaire. What I think is a uh, um, ways that we can uh, take better advantage of it and show greater insights is when we start applying other types of data to the results of the questionnaire. So for example, if I'm looking at a third party, they filled out a questionnaire, I can see how they've responded to these questions about various uh, security controls. And then I apply things like, for example, kill chain analysis or use cases that are applicable to that third party. Maybe it's based on industry or something like that. Um, I can then look at these and say, well, according to the stop, this kill chain this a scenario. You would need this, this and this control in place. I'm looking through um, the questionnaire that you filled out for me, and I see you don't have three of those controls that are implicated by these use cases. For for my purposes, those are going to be a higher priority than maybe these 10 other things that you say you're not doing, but I'm not finding any reasonable um, use cases or examples that show me that those controls would have stopped a breach in your industry or uh, in your organization anyway. So I want to prioritize those ones that I know for a fact um, are being implicated. So there's, I think, ways that we can take the questionnaire, add more dynamic and intelligent data to it, and, and get more use out of it than we have uh,
2: historically. I absolutely. Agree. I think um, one of the things that, and Dave, you can probably agree, that we run into a lot in third-party risk is, uh, you know, the, 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 the company wants to do business with your organization. So there's a incentive for them to complete this questionnaire and get it back to you as soon as possible. Right. A lot of times... Maybe that doesn't even get to the right staff. So if you mm-hmm. just get a questionnaire back and everything looks hey, there's yeses, to everything looks great. Um, if you're not taking additional sources of intelligence or, or doing different things and, and and throwing it against the wall and seeing you know that everything is on the up and up, you're right. It's 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 an attestation right. at best. You know you have to be doing some additional yes. level of due diligence, taking other tools and saying okay, they said patching is great. Well, I've run them through my continuous monitoring tool, um, and There's some issues that show up with patching or end-of-life software or something like that. So, okay, you know, vendor X, what's the story? Are you really great at patching and, and these are false positives? Or, hey, you really do have some issues out there and you're not as good as you say you are.
0: Right. I mean, one of the problems that strikes me is that often internally within organizations, there's somebody whose job it is to issue and collect responses to surveys, but from their standpoint, the objective is to get the surveys back completed and not necessarily to assess whether what's in the survey is accurate and reflective of the security posture of the company, right? So that's another <laughs> that's another whole job that is, that is totally apart from just having the survey on file and completed, which is to then actually, you know, do something with it. And my guess is, at the scale that we're talking about, and I talked to a, a compliance manager at a pharmaceuticals firm as part of this, the research I did for this book, ebook, you know, that she has tens of thousands of third parties that the company does business with. I mean, how do you how do you do this at scale, and what are some of the, you know, I guess hacks that um, that organizations are coming up with to both manage a very large number of third parties and also figure out which organizations really pose a risk to them and, and make sure that you're, they're giving due diligence to to those organizations.
1: The, the X in CyberGRX stands for exchange. <laughs> and I think that's one of the major ways that we believe uh, organizations, particularly those that have Tons of third parties can scale their operations up and, and address risk in an appropriate way. We were happy to see that yeah. mentioned um, in um, the ebook that, uh, that you wrote. Um, the idea there being that uh, you can address or bring value to both the third party and their customers. So both sides of the equation um, get value added. So from the third party standpoint, you were just talking about the poor person whose job it is to sit there and wait for those spreadsheets to come in their email and then scramble around, try to get answers and send the spreadsheet back out as fast as they possibly can. Um, There's a lot of assessment fatigue out there with third parties, particularly those that have lots of customers. So while we have customers with using lots of vendors, there's also vendors that have tons of customers and they may be getting assessed, you know, a thousand times a year um, or at least attempting to get assessed a thousand times a year. So for those individuals, um, the concept of an exchange, which allows them to do, um, a single or maybe a few assessments that meet the requirements of many of their customers yeah. um, is a great advantage you just don't have to worry about the time and effort it takes um, to go through that process over and over again
0: so I mean uh, John and Dave I mean one of the one of the evolutions in this industry that we've seen in the last 10 years is the emergence of uh, third-party risk rating uh, you know, firms and and they're popular a lot of companies use them um, what should folks understand about the utility of services like that, and also maybe the limitations of services like that?
2: You really need to know what you're getting with these services. It, it's not a, a replacement for an assessment service or anything like that. Um, I've always looked at it as a kind of a means to start the conversation. So a couple, couple different use cases you can use these tools for. You could, um, you know, if it, most third party programs aren't staffed up or have the ability to pay folks like CyberDRX um, for, say. Ten members of an RFP, uh, but you can use one of these tools to kind of get a, a quick touch and see if anything differentiates one of those services from the other for you know, from the others for good or for worse. Um, before you can you know you have to dedicate resources to do a full blown review, uh, you can use them during the assessment process, as I said before, to kind of compare what you're seeing in a questionnaire or or other evidence to to what's what these tools are seeing in in real life, um, and then. After the assessment, right, most assessments take, you know, four to six weeks, probably. If you're hitting the vendor um, every year, you still have a good 11 months where you're not looking at them. At least these are kind of an early warning that, hey, something something might yeah. be changing. Um, and, yeah. hey, you know, get back with this vendor and find out why this score may have dropped. Now, it may not be um, something that's related to you or maybe a false positive, but it, it, you at least have, you know, the canary in the coal mine to, um, to let you know if something's going on while you're not looking at them.
0: You know, one of the challenges that that companies has, we talked about, it, is just you know how many different uh, third parties they have, service providers, application providers, and so on, right down to the you know sandwich shop that's that's catering your your uh, you know your board meetings and so on. Um, <laughs> how how can companies figure out even who their third parties are, like who they're transacting business with, both officially and then increasingly as we know in this kind of shadow capacity this sort of shadow IT phenomena that that's uh, that's such a problem for organizations to to manage
2: yeah I, I think there's um, a bunch of ways I often refer to it uh, as like, to overturn the rocks um, you know if, if you're in healthcare you can start with your business associate list uh, you might go talk to um, accounts payable and, and see you know who you're paying um, it might talk to your um, so your DLP guys and, and and that sort of stuff, see what data is flowing out of the company. It, knowing your customer, uh, knowing who your customers are or where your data is going is essential in, in order. It's like the ground step um, before you ever send out a questionnaire, uh, ever look at evidence. You, you really need to know who your vendors are. Um, you need to know what data is going to them. Uh, and you need to have some idea of what, that, what risk that data represents. Because the worst thing you can do is have ten thousand vendors and assume that you need to do the exact same assessment for all of them chances are you probably don't you probably have a a small spattering of of really high-risk vendors that might need something like a site visit uh you might have a a larger group that is good getting a questionnaire and evidence and, and that sort of stuff and then you might have right down to the vendors where you really don't need to do anything they're not getting any data so uh it's truly important for any company to start with that as their very first step before they do anything else. Understand who has your data, how it got there, how much of the data it is, what type of data it is, um, and then from there, triage your vendors and then go, you know, either send out your own questionnaires or go through an exchange like CyberGRX. Um, But you don't want to waste cycles sending out questionnaires for something that really doesn't represent any risk, or you don't want to assess a company um, at the same level that, you know, the, the, the company that makes your pencils at the same level as the company that does your payroll. You want to understand what uh, risk each represents and, and react accordingly. John nailed
1: it. That's exactly it. I mean, we just talk about it in terms of inherent versus residual risk. And in large part, what John was just describing is conducting an inherent risk analysis. You know, who are my third parties? What data do they process? How sensitive is it? how critical is that third party to my success am i you know, vendor locked you know for example like can i can i move my operations to another vendor if this vendor goes under and those are the kinds of questions you have to ask to understand what kind of assessment to conduct just as john said
0: and could you could you just define those two terms inherent risk and residual risk and kind of what they mean in the context of third party risk management
1: Sure. So inherent risk is basically the risk that is posed by an organization in in terms of third party, by a third party organization, um, before you take into consideration the security controls that they've put in place and the effectiveness of those controls. So it's based on things like characteristics, what industry are they in, um, some of their complexity characteristics, how many locations do they have, what sort of interconnected networks do they have, um, how many staff, those types of things, the types of data that they're processing by virtue of the work that they do. If it's a, we were talking about healthcare earlier, very sensitive data versus, yeah, the pencil maker who has, you know, specs on, I guess, a number two pencil, um, maybe one of those is more sensitive than the other, depending on the type of business you do. So inherent risk is all those types of characteristics. Residual risk is what we measure after you take into account the effectiveness of the security controls that that third party has put in place. Um, so, you know, if they're dealing with sensitive data, if they have a high inherent risk around you know, data protection, but if we see under data protection that they're identifying, classifying, um, a scanning for sensitive data, and then encrypting it and using a you know, strong DLP program, then the residual risk hopefully is fairly low um, after you take into account the the effectiveness of those controls.
0: Sure. Okay. And um, are there um, frameworks uh, or uh, guides out there that organizations that are looking to sort of build out a third-party cyber risk management, maybe they've got a small one, but but want to expand it, or, or maybe they're starting from scratch, uh, that they can use to start down that road uh, and uh, give them, a you know, again, a kind of framework to build on?
1: Sure. Yes. Yeah, so... There are a number of different uh, ways to get started on this. If you're especially a small um, business who maybe hasn't had a third-party risk management program before, the first thing I would seek out is instructional guides like the ebook book um, that, uh, that you wrote that gives you a high-level overview. This is what third-party risk is. This is why it's important it gives you those stats to use when you have to go back and ask for some funding. Um, and then kind of points out here are the basic steps you need to go through to get this process done. Um, but as far as frameworks that are um, kind of widely uh, globally available, The NIST cybersecurity framework is quite popular. It's integrated into a lot of um, third-party risk programs around the world for small and large um, businesses and and creates a very good um, framework for the types of capabilities that you're going to want to have in your third-party risk management program. And it's not even specific, just a third-party risk, but I think that's a good place to start.
2: Yeah, I I would agree. I think one of the things I always tell people is, you know, go go talk to your internal security guys. Find out what framework your own program is built against, and then build uh-huh. build your program off of that. Because you, from an audit standpoint, it, it really makes a lot of sense to hold your vendors to the same controls you're holding. You know, you're trying to meet internally, um, and you know, my own shameless plug: get involved with you know, talk to other third parties. Join something like you know, like the Third Party Risk Association or something else like that. Um, Talk to other people in your in your industry. Go to trade shows. Find out what they're doing. You know, this doesn't have to be something you need to build in a vacuum. Um, I found over the past couple of years that the third party risk community is, you know, we're, we're often treated kind of like the, the, you know, the the redheaded stepchild of information security. But because of that, we're a very close knit community. You know, we're we're we're, we're a niche mm-hmm. industry, um, but we're all facing the same struggle. So. Um, you know, if, if you're looking for help, go get involved with, with some group, um, talk to a local chapter or, or whatever of, um, in your area or, or, or a group such as mine and, you know, and, and find out what other people are doing. Don't reinvent the wheel.
0: Uh, Dave Stapleton of CyberGRX and John Arrett of the Third Party Risk Association. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Dave Stapleton is the Director of Assessment Operations at the firm CyberGRX. John Arrett is the President and Co-Founder of the Third Party Risk Association. They joined us to talk about managing third-party cyber risk, and we're both contributors to our new e-book, Rethinking Third Party Cyber Risk Management. You can download that from our website at securityledger.com slash riskbook. You've been listening to a spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast sponsored by CyberGRX. CyberGRX provides enterprises and their third parties with the most cost-effective and scalable approach to third-party cyber risk management today built on the market's first third-party cyber risk exchange, CyberGRX arms organizations with a dynamic stream of third-party data and advanced analytics helping organizations efficiently manage cyber risk in their partner ecosystems. Check them out at cybergrx.com.